As you may surmise from reading, we're getting down to the nuts and bolts of truth. And so, uh, these, these questions are getting a little more, maybe a little more detailed. They've been, I think, kind of general and historic up to this point in time. So, did anything um, stand out that you thought was particularly interesting or difficult or troubling or anything in the chapter, any of these questions that uh, you had to answer, were they difficult? Y'all have done a very good job, by the way. So, okay, seeing blank faces and hearing silence, I will move on. All right. So, what do you do? Okay, we'll go down. Huh? Okay. As I say, this is uh, there's a question in the in there about knowledge coming from experience. So, there's an old expression: the good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from poor judgment. <laughs> Except some people just don't seem to learn. Well, <laughs> she, I had just got it. I, I couldn't figure out. I thought it was like a rat or something uh, on the ground. I couldn't figure out what. Was I thought about putting a different one up there. This similar where. Sorry, I, Somebody who did somebody just didn't pass physics, you know. Okay, um, it's been brought to my attention last week that something I stated uh, two weeks ago at best was confusing and even contradictory. So, in one context, I stated that I was certain—that is, theological certainty. Of salvation. In another context, um, I made mention of a debate between Dr. William Lane Craig and an atheist uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, where Dr. Krauss attempted to um, lead Dr. Craig into a trap by asking Craig uh, if he had absolute certainty that God exists. And Craig answered, no. Okay, so he replied that he did not, thereby disarming Krauss's ploy, um, and which that what he was hoping Craig would say was, "Oh, absolutely," and by doing that, he would have demonstrated for all his supporting audience out there that, yeah, Christianity and religion is closed-minded; it's not. Uh, it's not based on reason, it's based on blind faith. That's the straw man that commonly comes up. So, but Craig, in replying the way he did, popped Krauss's bubble. And the confusing part that I guess threw some folks off is, as I said, yeah, I would answer the same way because I'm familiar with this straw man argument, okay? But, um, obviously, I didn't do a very good job of making that clear 
to everybody. So I apologize uh, for the uh, confusion. And, uh, you know, if I, if I say something that's confusing or an error or stupid, just tell me. Okay? I can say with absolute certainty that I've done all three at one time or another. I've said something confusing or an error or stupid. And so you won't hurt my feelings. I'd rather get things straightened out. Okay? Are we okay? Are we still friends? Good. We're not? Oh. <laughs> All right. So, um, with that, uh, let's, <clears throat> let, me, let me give you a hypothetical situation before we move on here. Because we're, I think we're doing pretty good for time so far. Consider a situation in which um, you're on trial for a serious crime. Okay, witnesses testify that um, they saw you near the scene of the crime, and in fact, you happened to be near where it happened. You happened to be there, but you didn't do it. But there's surveillance video that shows someone running from the scene who looks like you. And they're wearing, they're dressed like you, they're wearing the same color and style clothing, uh, and you just happen to be, that you just happen to be wearing it at the same time. And then there's another video showing you leaving the building and going out in the parking lot, getting in your car and driving away. And shortly thereafter, you're pulled over by the police and arrested. So, you have no proof of your innocence. There's nobody with you. Nobody knew where you were um, to validate that you weren't there, but you were there. And so, you have no alibi, but you know with absolute certainty that you didn't commit the crime. What are you going to do? In a criminal case, guilt is established on the basis of evidence that there uh, is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. If you remember the jury, would you uh, convict this person? It's kind of tough. Well, you know, when people come to Christ... They know, many of them know, what happened in their life. And they can say that I have 100% sure that I'm saved. There was a change in my life. I was searching and I, and I wanted to know the truth. And then when I heard it, after hearing everything else, when I heard it, I knew it. And, I, and I'm totally confident. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. You know it's true. But not everybody comes to Christ that way. Maybe as a child, you heard the gospel in Sunday school and somebody prayed with you or mom and dad witnessed to you uh, uh, at bedtime and you said, yeah, I want to I want to trust in Jesus. I want to go to heaven. But then years later, um, this is all uh, all after Sunday school and church and you're off on your own and you 
have a friend at work or in college that uh, has a different view than you do. And they begin to put ideas in your mind. You begin to question it. That happens with people too. Okay, so that's one reason why I think regardless of where you are in that spectrum, it's good to know that there, uh, that your faith is reasonable, that it's defendable. Even if at some point you say, it's, I don't have 100% certainty. Okay? So, we did talk about uh, theological certainty as expressed, though not formally defined in a variety of ways. In a narrow sense, um, we just mentioned about salvation, uh, eternal life, to establish assurance uh, through a correct understanding of the gospel. And then there's a broader sense in which some Christians argue that um, we, uh, we have to accept the existence of God and the truth of His Bible as the inerrant word by means of faith. These are called presuppositionalists. And most presuppositionalists, I'm not, I'm not going to presume to say all of them, but I think most of them would object to the use of reason and evidence as a means of arriving at these truths. So, would, would you, uh, Pastor Drew, would, would that fit with your experience and presuppositionalist? My experience with presuppositionalist is pretty limited. So. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right, well, there's some very brilliant people who are, uh, who base their method of apologetics and all on presuppositionalism, so I'm not going to discount them. And then philosophy, um, our texts say that um, often use the term certainty in, in, a, in a variety of ways. So one of those ways is this idea of logical certainty. And I, I don't know how many books I looked at, but even within our own textbook, you probably were getting the idea that certainty is... Uh, is applied in, in a number of different ways. And in fact, when we, when we look at deductive reasoning, um, oftentimes the, the writer will say, well, if the premises are true and the formula logic is valid, then the conclusion is absolutely true. But the distinction that has to be made there is, or the the critical part is, are the premises true? Are they 100% true? Or are they almost undeniable? Uh, one of the famous uh, syllogisms that's in just every logic <laughs> textbook, textbook is, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. I may have heard that one before. <laughs> you heard it. Okay. Have you had logic? Have you taken any logic? You're taking it this year? Cool. All right. Well, it's almost undeniable that the first premise is true. I mean, all men are mortal. 
other than Jesus, uh, who has ever lived in history, is uh, still living. At, you know, even Adam lived 930 years, Methuselah lived 969 years, but they eventually died, right? Okay, so that's one idea. And then the other is objective certainty, which is highly probable. And that's probably where most of us, where most of us are. Okay, so any questions on that? Yeah, what's that say? What is that thing on there? I had to grab this off of some website or something. And I'm not familiar with this TV program. I think it aired in the 90s, The X-Files. I may have seen it once, but what caught my attention um, when I saw advertised or previewed or something on TV a long time ago is the little statement down below says, Truth is out there. This must be pre-post-modernism. <laughs> so what is truth and how do we find it? Well, the author starts out in chapter 4, our preview of the upcoming chapter, um, with a short discussion on postmodernism. And postmodernists deny the reality of absolute or objective truth, either 100% or even highly probable truth. They would say that uh, it's all person relative. So, you got to wonder how these people would react if, say, they went to their physician and upon rendering a serious diagnosis requiring surgery, um, the surgeon asked them, well, what, 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 you got a postmodern, postmodern surgeon, okay? So we asked him, ah, oh, well, what kind of surgery would you like? Um, what do you feel like having? Uh, we can do an appendectomy. Um, we can do a coronary bypass. Uh, knee replacement. Knee replacement has been popular lately. Yeah, what do you feel like? Well, the world just doesn't work that way. So, we gotta we gotta admit that these people are not thinking very deeply or they have some ulterior motive because they cannot function consistently with that worldview. And when we look at tests for truth, that will be one of them. And we're going to get into that a little bit uh, tonight. So, uh, the postmodernist rejects absolute truth, but we know that absolute truth exists in the mind of God. One of the things that scientists and uh, engineers and anybody that does any kind of uh, precision type of uh, analysis has to uh, do things according to a certain standard. And just to give an example, we have, I don't have one with me, but we had a, a yardstick, a meter stick, right? And we're going to measure something. And we're in a laboratory. You've got a, a one liter vial. And if you've taken chemistry, you know that if you fill a, a graduated cylinder or um, 
a, a graduated flask that there's a line on it, and it tells you what the con- what the uh, content is at that line. It's exactly one meter, and it's guaranteed to be within a certain accuracy. But where's the standard? Well, there is a standard for each of the uh, metric measurements, and they're in Paris. And there was a, I think they're using something else now, but there was a standard meter bar. And that meter bar just is the standard. It's determined by um, dividing the circumference of the earth by a certain number, and that's the meter. And they get it to, I don't know how many decimal points. So whatever you're using for a standard uh, in spiritual matters, or even in physical matters, God knows exactly um, what the distance is. He, he knows everything, right? He knows the exact dimensions of this book. And He knows them at any given instant because the book is probably changing in size at the molecular level just due to heat and air motion or whatnot. He knows the position of every atom, every subatomic particle in the universe. To me, that's mind-blowing. But that's God's infinite knowledge. The Bible says it in a much more down-to-earth sense. He, he says, the Bible says that the hairs of our head, the very hairs of our head are numbered. All of us. Now, I don't give God a whole lot to do now anymore. See, that made his, made his job easier. All right, so postmodernism rejects Objective truth. The statement, um, the statement's contradictory. That is, to make a statement that nothing is true is to make a truth statement. Somebody says, "Well, I can't be sure about anything." Well, about that statement you just made, you sure about that? It's self-defeating, self-contradictory, and we could give more examples. Um, so there are three, let's move on down here a little bit. There are three possible definitions or theories of truth. And these are in your textbook reading for the coming week. The correspondence theory, the coherence theory, and the pragmatic theory. So, all three of these have been uh, claimed by different philosophers and people, but <clears throat> the correspondence theory is the one that has been around for a long time. It's just the one that makes sense. So, a little more detail. The correspondence theory states that an idea that truth is that which corresponds to the way things are. If something exists, then there is truth about the thing that exists. Pretty basic. And then for something to be true, it must be that that thing actually exists. It corresponds to reality. Unicorns are just a concept, as far as I know. Unicorns don't exist, except for some kids that have a little stuffed animal doll kind of thing. 
So let's uh, look at the next one. <clears throat> Coherence. Uh, is that idea that its elements of a belief system are coherent. That is, they fit together. They're harmonious and they're non-contradictory with one another. And if, uh, and if that is the case, then those who hold to coherence say that if it meets those criteria, then it's true. But is it? As you read in the book, he gives several examples, but a belief may not be true just because its elements fit together, even without contradiction. Take, for example, a movie or a novel you may read. The plot and the, and the characters act in a way which is coherent throughout the book. The plot makes sense. Um, and so, because it's coherent and it's non-contradictory and things flow harmoniously, it seems real. But it's just fiction. We uh, played a little bit of a clip at Trail Life. Monday night, there's a old Peter Sellers movie, and Peter Sellers is playing this actor from India. And the movie is set in 1870, the British and uh, some Middle Eastern country at war. And he comes up behind the guy, and he grabs him around the neck. And the director goes, God! He had a waterproof watch on. It blew. It just blew the realism of the movie. Sometimes I like to watch these movies too, uh, because I'm an old car buff, to see if now this movie was set in 1962. Why is there a 65 Chevy in that movie? <laughs> All right, some coherence problems, and then pragmatism. Uh, simply states that um, the idea is true if it works. Well, the problem with that, as a definition of truth, is that it tends to be subjective. What may be shown to work for one person or one group of people may not work for somebody else. So it's person, it's, it's subject to a person. It's person-specific or group-specific. So then it, it's not objective. So it doesn't meet the requirement for truth to be objective. But both um, coherence and, and pragmatism can be good tests for truth. Now the difference between definition of truth and a test for truth. All right, so we have some uh, some tests for truth. One here is logical soundness and validity. The idea that uh, truth is that which corresponds to the way things are is one area of one aspect of validity. And then for something to be true, that thing must exist. And then it has to pass. Remember this from last time. The uh, 
criterion for indefeasibility. And we, I was hoping maybe to get into a little more of this this week that uh, I could demonstrate some uh, informal fallacies. But as we get as we get time in future classes, I hope to introduce a few of those to you because I know some of you, especially maybe all of you, especially want to uh, know how to use these tests for truth. The book talks about what they are, defines what they are, and in a few places uh, gives some examples that will be helpful. But you really have to take a formal, a regular course in logic, and really there are several levels of it to take. All right, so internal coherence is another test. And we just talked about coherence, so you know what that is. And then empirical adequacy. That sounds like a 25-cent term, but what does that mean? Well, it could encompass several things, but physical evidence, um, including testimony, documentation, historical accuracy, even statistics. Uh, You probably are very familiar with political polls. Uh, Someone has sagely stated that figures don't lie, but liars sure can figure. (laughs) But statistics uh, is a very interesting uh, mathematical subject. And if you... uh, interested in math, I suggest at some point in time you take a course in statistics. Very, very helpful. Alright, so where are we here? We have empirical adequacy and we have experientially relevant. Here's our pragmatic test. That means that the idea If it works, it's true. But, if it works in the laboratory of life, we can can test it personally. So, but get this though, Christianity isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. If you do it the other way, you've got a logical fallacy. We're moving along quite quickly here. Okay, again, our wisdom from the Proverbs. I had this up before, but I think it bears uh, showing again. Proverbs 18.13, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and a shame to him. And a couple of verses later, the one, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. A lot of times we take the first thing and we hang on to it and we don't consider alternatives. And I'm not talking about necessarily about um, salvation or those other kinds of things, although 
when you come to the truth and you test it, uh, there's no reason to, uh, when you've gained knowledge of defending it, there's no reason to avoid listening, listening or talking to Jehovah Witnesses. I enjoy it myself. Uh, it's, it's, I have to admit, I haven't been very successful. It's like trying to nail jello to the wall, for, if you want a good analogy. And then Proverbs 24, 6, uh, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And then, I have one more there. Yeah. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. And then President Reagan's, my favorite uh, quote from him, trust but verify. There's a... uh, a Zondervan book series that's called Counterpoints. Uh, have you seen any of those, Pastor Drew? Uh, put, put one up here. Um, you may have seen this one. This is a very, very good book. Um, I think it was probably the first one in the Counterpoint series that I read. It's a five views on apologetics. And uh, different Christian... Uh, philosophers contributed to this to this book, and the way that it um, the way that it was put together was uh, each of the philosophers. I'm going to go over here where I can read this and point it out. Uh, there's classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, um, and uh, reformed uh, apologetics. And presuppositional apologetics, and then there's one that uh, uh, Gary Habermas uh, uses. It has to do with the resurrection. He starts right with the resurrection. Classical apologetics will start with um, proving the existence of God, and then showing that the New Testament is reliable, and then showing that uh, that Christ uh, is who He claimed to be. Well, um, walked away too quickly here. The way this, the way this book was done, it was done in a, in a very scholarly way. And if you were to uh, say subscribe to a a scholarly organization, I belong to the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society, and papers are submitted. They're peer reviewed. Other philosophers who are uh, specializing in a particular in that particular area will comment on it, critique it, and then these will be published. Then um, the author will then come back and address the comments, and that's what happened here. With that's what happens with this counterpoint series of books. Uh, so chapter one is on classical apologetics and the author uh, writes their paper and then the evidentialist gives a response the cumulative case apologist gives their response presuppositionalist gives their response and the reformed epistemologist gives their response and each one of these uh, scholars representing these apologetic methods writes 
uh, a paper in defense of their view, and then the others comment or critique it. You learn a tremendous amount by getting these different arguments. We talk about logic, we talk about arguments, but we're not talking about an emotional confrontation. An argument is a sentence that puts forth a truth claim. Okay? So there are about, I don't know, maybe two dozen of these. Um, This one I just started to read. Uh, There are four viewpoints on Christianity and and philosophy. And the first, yeah, the first author listed there, Graham Opie, is an atheist. Now here's a great way to interact and really get a diverse view. If you want to, if you really want to be honed, um, go for the strongest argument that's against your view. Iron sharpens iron. And then uh, another book that I that I read. These are three views on creation and evolution. And uh, the editors realized that they didn't really have it covered well, so they issued a second edition that has four views. They've got four different authors to contribute. And so I have these on Kindle, and I, I highly recommend all of them, although I think I would, if you're going to want to read on creation and evolution, get the get the second version here with four authors. Because uh, the first one is Ken Ham, Hugh Ross, uh, Deborah Harzman, and Stephen C. Meyer. Stephen C. Meyer would represent the intelligent design view. Okay, and then winding down here. Um, say something about epistemological humility. On the one hand, I mean, we can be really dogmatic. And we're sure we're right. And I, when I was 25, I knew everything. And now that I'm almost three times that age, <laughs> getting closer to it, I feel like I don't know anything. <laughs> I've been proven wrong too many times. And then on the other end is just total skepticism. And you can't blame Charlie for not wanting to kick the football. He's been he's been tricked too many times. So one of the great hazards of being dogmatically certain about something is the tremendous hurdle you set um, for yourself to change your mind when the evidence leads to a different position. So, one's personal, one's personal investment can be such that pride prevents, them, prevents you from uh, repenting, actually. Think of Festus. What did he say to Paul? Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. But I think he saw something at stake there. Maybe he did come to Christ later. I don't know. But there was something 
there, I've often pondered over that. Paul gave a tremendous amount of evidence. His own conversion. He saw the risen Christ. All the others. And Festus can only say, almost. Well, uh, it can be a financial investment that you've got. uh, Maybe you own a business that, maybe someone owns a business that is uh, not exactly uh, a Christ-honoring type of business, and you don't want to give it up because that's your livelihood, and so you reject Christ. And we can give other examples. So, perhaps one of the most famous people that I uh, that I have here as an example did change his mind in spite of the fact that he had a a, a, a scholastic reputation in fact the very title on the book says how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind this is the late Anthony flew I'll just read a little bit on the back here. In his youth, atheist Anthony Flew committed to the Socratic principle of following the evidence wherever it may lead. After a lifetime of probing philosophical inquiry, this towering and courageous intellect has now concluded the evidence leads conclusively to God. Flew's colleagues in the Church of Fundamentalist Atheism, I love that, I did that, will be scandalized by a story, but believers will be greatly encouraged. The earnest seekers will find much in Flew's journey to illuminate their own path towards the truth. And that was written, that comment was by Francis Collins, who was the director of the National Institute of Health, who was a Christian. And there are several other here. Um, now, as far as anybody knows, Professor Flew did not come to accept Christ as his Savior, but he seemed to be leaning that way. Uh, so we don't know if perhaps at the very end. But a fellow who's going to be speaking at the conference, Gary Habermas, whose uh, doctoral dissertation, I, you may recall I mentioned, was on the defense of the resurrection of Christ. He did it at Michigan State University. Not exactly your fundamental evangelical university and he defended it and he was awarded his PhD he was friends he became friends with Anthony Flew and he witnessed to him many times and uh, they they were on a first name basis and so Dr. Habermas is uh, is reluctant to, to say whether or not Professor Flew accepted Christ but we can only hope that's one example uh, another example is Robert N. Wilkin got his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote his doctoral dissertation uh, on repentance in the Scripture. Did an exhaustive study of repentance. And uh, I've, I've never met Dr. Wilkin, but uh, I've had a couple of communications with him. And he has a, a ministry called, um, uh, what is it, Grace 
yeah, the Grace Evangelical Grace Evangelical Society, I think it is. And he he writes uh, in, a, in a publication. And after writing his dissertation, his whole uh, scholastic enterprise was based on this um, very biblical view of repentance. And he said at a conference, he said, uh, you know, I got to know the late, now the late Zane Hodges. And Zane Hodges held a different view. And he said, Zane made a lot of sense. And I had to repent of my theory of repentance. <laughs> so, not that, not that anything he said was wrong. It's just that it missed something. Everything that he said was biblical and correct, but it was deficient. Does that make sense? Kinda. And that, and I know you want to know what it is, right? He, he looked at the Old Testament Hebrew words, nakam and shub, covered those. The New Testament Greek words, and I don't know anything about Hebrew, so don't think I'm smart, because I know those two words. <laughs> and then he looked at the New Testament words, and he came to the, the conclusion that repentance fundamentally and primarily means a change of mind. And what he overlooked was that in some instances it can mean a decision to turn from sin. And that's what he that's what he missed. Because he was so honed in on just this change of mind thing. Because he wants to he wants to he, his goal and all of our goals is to make the gospel clear and not to inadvertently mix works or any of our own merit in with it. And by using that as a filter, you might say, he he missed this important point. Okay? One more. Professor Dean Kenyon. An atheist, biologist, author of perhaps the... um, the primary textbook on chemical evolution realized at some point that evolution, Darwinian evolution, is a farce. That it just cannot be. There's so much evidence against it. Intelligent design, the complexity of um, amino acids and Proteins and how they form together to make uh, the building blocks of DNA just can't happen by chance. It's just so highly improbable. Dean Kenyon abandoned his uh, position in the university. I think he was teaching at UC Berkeley. Um, resigned his position became a born-again Christian and works with the Discovery Institute and Intelligent Design. That takes courage, these three scholars that we just talked about. That takes courage to do that. 
And so, we never know. My dad was one that took courage, I think, to come to Christ. He was a rough, tough, cussing, blasphemous sailor. But when he got cancer, he realized he was going to, if he didn't die soon from it, he was going to die sooner or later. And so he had to reconsider the teachings of his childhood. And he came to Christ, I'm so thankful to say. Alright. I've got some slides on some more slides on doing logic and stuff, but I thought, eh, might not get there. We can wait till next week. I think we've got a blank screen right there. If I scroll down a couple more, we'll be into something else. Alright? It's almost eight thirty. Any questions, comments? Did I confuse anybody on anything? Do I need to clear anything up? If so, don't. I, I, you know, I got thick skin. Uh, I can tell you, I got thick skin because of the father I had <laughs> and the Boy Scout troop I was in. Why uh, we got yelled at like we were in the Marine Corps, I think. And the. Uh, Vocabulary wasn't any different. <laughs> Need I say more? All right, let's. Shall we close in prayer? Are we good? All right, Dan, would you do the honors for us? Sure. You're closing prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy on us. I thank you for this class, Lord. I pray, Lord, that um, the teachings from Mr. Dickens will just strengthen our faith more into you, Lord. That we look to you for everything, for all our answers, Lord. And just uh, thank you, Lord, that it will help us also to um, help talk to others, Lord, that maybe don't know you and approach them as well, Lord. We know that, Lord, that you desire men should perish. So we ought to have that same mindset. Bless us uh, this week, Lord, and our time with our families, Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention. You're a great class.